they're crushing it at camp right now, so much so that Brian threw out his back. So if you can be praying for Brian, and guess how he did it? He was picking up a ping pong ball. I kid you not. I kid you not. I'm putting him on full blast this morning. So, um, but we have some kids that we're baptizing out there this evening, and so I'm pinch hitting for him uh, out at camp tonight. But you could be praying for them today. They have their final session tonight, and we would love to see more kids take that step of obedience and uh, get baptized this evening. We've got VBS this week. We've got, um, we're, we're marching in the parade. So if you've never marched in a parade before, Celebrate Woodenville has a parade this Saturday. So you can join us and march in a parade. Here's the bad thing about this parade. We can't throw candy. What kind of parade is that? Like, what's up with that, Woodenville? But we've got that going on, and then we've got Arbor Kids Day. Super excited about that as well. But nothing makes summer fun like when your baseball team is in the hunt for a playoff spot, right? <laughs> you guys don't care about that? My Chicago Cubs are just a game outside of the wild card, so my mood right now is fluctuating every day with a win or a loss, and if there are any Mariners fans in here, I'm sure you feel the same way right now. So anyway, um, let's jump into our text today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week, verses 13 through 17. Um, We are in this series in the book of Mark, which if you haven't figured it out already, is going to take us quite a while to get through, okay? We're going to take little pauses and do little series in between, uh, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Mark, and here's why we are spending so much time and moving so slowly through it. We're moving so slowly through this book because I want us to be immersed in this story, I want us to be immersed in the story of Jesus according to Mark. I want us to have the way that we think be shaped by this story. I want our, our church shaped by this narrative, the way we interact with one another, the way we interact with the world around us, the way we think and live and the way we are married, the way we play, all of those things, I want them shaped by this story. And last week we saw that in order to become a healing community, in order to become a place where people can find hope and healing in Jesus, we first have to rest in the healing authority of Jesus ourselves. And this week in our text, Mark 2, 13 through 17, we're going to see how this might play out practically in our own lives and in our community around us. And so again, if you could, would you please stand with me as I read our text today from Mark, verses 13 through 17. It starts here, verse 13. Jesus went out again by the sea, and the whole crowd came to him, and he taught them. And as he went along, he, that's Jesus, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him, and he got up and followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the experts in the law and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have come to call the righteous, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Spirit, right now, we invite you into this place. 
Would you open our hearts, open our minds to the reality of your word, to the truth in here? God, would you draw us to become more um, hospitable people, people who reach out to those who are unlike us, God? Would you use my words this morning, God? Would you, would you teach us today, Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can take a seat. All right, I wanna start with a question, and the question is this. Uh, what do you see when you look at someone? What do you see when you look at someone? When you're walking down the street and you see a stranger, when you see someone here at church, when you see someone at the grocery store, what do you see? When you see a group of people on the news or or, or they're marching down the street in protest of something, what do you see? When you look at people, what do you see? Life and people are oftentimes far too complicated for us to see people as individuals. We, we, we see a group of protesters, we see a sea of people, and we can't see them as individuals with individual stories. It'll make our head explode. It's too much to process. We have such a difficult time doing that, looking at some sort of sea of people and thinking that, that each and every one of those people in that group have a unique story and they have unique desires and hopes and fears. This is, this is really difficult for us. It's practically impossible for us. And so what we do is we take people and we put people into different groups of people with categories in our minds so that we can actually make sense of the world. We divide people into different types, into hipsters and tech nerds and Trumpers and evangelicals, that one's really bad, or woke or black or white. And then we associate traits or characteristics with that particular group of people. Uh, This writer named David Brooks, he has a column in the New York Times, and he wrote this a little while ago. He said, here's the mindset that's tearing us apart. And in this article, he, he calls this way of processing the world essentialism. And in it, he writes that essentialism is the belief that each of the groups that we identify with our labels actually has an essential and immutable, that means unchangeable nature, rooted in biology or in the nature of reality. Essentialists may see the world divided into dichotomies and history as a clash of group versus group power struggles, clashes that demand utter group solidarity and they give life meaning. Basically, it's the idea that we label people with group identities and we say, you're this kind of person And here are the things that are true about you, and you're never going to change. And because these things are true about you, you are not my kind of people, and so we're never going to find commonality, we're never going to find solidarity over anything. We all do this to a certain degree, which is why I open with that question, what do you see when you look at someone? What do you see when you look at someone? And I also open with this question because in our text today, Jesus himself steps right into the middle of this kind of human propensity to divide people into groups, into the righteous and into the sinners, 
into the good people and into the bad people. Remember, right before our text here, Jesus has already begun to do some miraculous things. He healed a man with leprosy by touching him. He also healed a paralyzed man, but he didn't just heal the paralyzed man, he forgave his sins. And here again, we see Jesus stepping into another situation that stirs up some more controversy. It stirs up some more conflict. And for our Bible study nerds in the room who are following along and trying to understand Mark, here at this point in Mark, um, the section that we're in right now is an intentionally arranged series of vignettes of different conflicts that Jesus finds himself in. And so from Mark 2.1 all the way through Mark 3.6, what we're going to encounter are five separate mini stories that are setting up the major conflict here in Mark that will culminate in Jesus being crucified on the cross. Here at the beginning of this story, though, Mark's just, he's just kind of heating up the conflict right now. He's just kind of showing this sort of adversity that Jesus is encountering uh, from the religious leaders. Now, for those of you that don't like conflict or are conflict averse, I hate to tell you this, but like conflict is an absolutely essential ingredient for a good story, isn't it? All of us have watched movies that they don't have conflict and they just kind of meander and then they end and you're like, that was it? Anyone watch a movie like that before? You see a movie like that and you're like, what, what was that all about? Mark, here, this is the epicenter of Mark, is this conflict that Jesus has with those who are in charge of the religious culture and life of Israel. And so we pick up this story in verse 13 and Jesus is on the move again. Another thing you'll notice about Jesus in the gospel of Mark is he's always on the move. He's always going somewhere new. He's doing something new. And right here is no different. In verse 13, it says that Jesus went out again by the sea. He's on the move and this whole crowd came to him and he taught them. And so again, we see Jesus is extremely popular. He is crowded by people. Mark tells us that in this moment he is teaching, but he doesn't tell us what he's teaching. And then in verse 14, Mark writes this, that as he, Jesus, went along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me. He said to him, and he got up and followed him. And so right here, we are introduced to a new character here in the Gospel of Mark, uh, a disciple, one of the 12 actually, this guy named Levi. And the most important thing that you need to know about Levi this morning is his profession. It's his profession. And what does Mark say that he's doing here? He's a tax collector. He's at this tax booth collecting taxes right there by the Sea of Galilee. And so he might have been collecting some of the fishermen's catch as they were coming into port. He, he might have been collecting some of the sales and trading that were going on around the edge of the lake. Either way, what we see here is that Levi is this tax collector. Now just to get a sense of the room, a feel for the room, a temperature check here. How many of you here in this room love paying taxes? Raise your hand. You just, you love it. Like paying tax, no one, huh? How many of you love doing taxes? Like February, March rolls around and you're like, I can't wait. This is my favorite time of year. N no one, okay. H how many of you do taxes for a living? Anyone do taxes here? A couple of you, I see a couple hands. How many of you collect taxes? Anyone work for the IRS? <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna raise your hands now, cowards, right? Uh -huh, that's what I thought. I'm just kidding. Point being, no one really loves taxes, right? <laughs> no one loves taxes. But Levi was this tax collector. And in first century Israel, what you have to understand is there were very few uh, professions hated more than the tax collector. 
And it wasn't just because people didn't like paying their taxes. It was what paying their taxes represented and who they had to pay their taxes to. You see, Levi wasn't this tax collector who was collecting taxes for some sort of centrally run or locally run government that was operated and ran by independent Israelite citizens. Remember, Israel is under the oppressive rule of Rome. And so by being a tax collector, Levi is is an employee of the state of Rome. And so he was the very agent He was the physical human representative and reminder day after day after day to all the Israelite people around him who were working hard and and, and trying to make a living. He was this reminder every single day of the oppressive, invasive rule of Rome. And so to be an Israelite like Levi and employ yourself to this uh, tyrannical, oppressive government, it made you the ultimate traitor. It made you the ultimate black sheep in their culture. And so we can only begin to imagine the kind of harassment that Levi faced day after day after day. And we have no idea about Levi's backstory. Maybe this was the only job that Levi could get. Maybe this was the only way he could put food on the table and keep a roof over his head. But regardless of his backstory, his profession made him abhorrent to a vast majority of his fellow countrymen. But not to Jesus. Not to Jesus. Again, go back real quick. Verse 14, what does it say? Verse 14 says, as he, Jesus, went along, he saw Levi. Jesus saw Levi, with a special emphasis on that word saw, the way that Jesus saw Levi. As Jesus is going along the lakeshore, he sees Levi in his element at the tax booth, collecting taxes, doing what he does every single day, and yet Jesus did not see Levi as this painful symbol of conquest. He did not see Levi as a traitor to his people. He did not lump Levi into this group of people that were hated, Jesus didn't do that. He saw Levi as an individual. Jesus saw Levi as a human being made in the image of God. Jesus saw Levi as a fellow Israelite loved by his father in heaven and he said to Levi, follow me, follow me. And so for the first time in a long time, maybe years, instead of getting spat on, instead of being cursed at, Levi has this interaction with this popular, strange, kind, authoritative, powerful new rabbi named Jesus. And and he he sees him as an individual and and he calls out to Levi, he says, follow me. And he does, He, he, he leaves everything. He leaves the tax collecting booth and he goes with Jesus. And so again, I wanna ask all of you, when you look, what do you see when you look at people? What do you see when you look at other people? Like Jesus, do you see people who are typically not your people? Whatever that might mean. Maybe they're a different socioeconomic status than you. Maybe they are a different color than you. Maybe they're liberal. Maybe they're conservative. Worst of all, maybe they're 49ers fans. I don't know. When you see other people and you label them with a group identity of other, or do you see people like Jesus sees them? They're different than you. And maybe they're not going after the same thing as you right now, but do you see other people like Jesus sees them as individuals? 
Do you see them with their own unique stories, a story that has been providentially overseen by the same God that loves you? He loves them. Do you see other people as individuals who are made in the very same image of God that you are, carrying with them all of the hope and, 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 and dignity and the miracle of eternity within them? Do you see people that way? Because that's how Jesus sees people. That's how Jesus sees people. We see it in this story, so much so that he ends up going over to Levi's house for a dinner party. Look at verse 15. As Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the experts in the law and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus goes over to Levi's house after calling him to follow him. And, and lo and behold, look at the company that Levi keeps, the people that he spends time with. There are other tax collectors and sinners like himself. But here's the thing. Not for one moment does this deter Jesus from going over to the house, from spending time with them, from laughing with them, from celebrating with them, from eating with them, from loving them. But Jesus and the tax collectors and the sinners, they're not the only people here. We also see that they're the experts in the law. Your translation might put that as the scribes and the Pharisees. They're gathered there as well. But they didn't go to Levi's house to join in the festivities. They went to watch and observe and lurk and peer into it. Also notice this. Look at the difference, okay? This is really important right here. Look at the difference uh, between the way that Jesus sees these people and the religious leaders, and the way that they see these people. Look at verse 16, Mark writes, and he uses the same word here. He says, when the experts in the law and the Pharisees saw he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they began to question him and judge him, and they were appalled. These religious leaders, they saw the very same people that Jesus saw and instead of laughing with them, instead of loving them, they sneered, they judged. The ironic thing though, is that Jesus and these religious leaders, they had the exact same goal. They had the same dream. They had the same desire, and that was this, that God's people would be made holy and that they would experience liberation and redemption. The Pharisees wanted this, Jesus wanted this, but the way they went about trying to accomplish that were vastly different. And that's why there's growing conflict here between Jesus and these religious leaders. Here's the thing about these Pharisees though. Ultimately, I think they get a bad rap. They're oftentimes pitted as like these arch rivals of Jesus and, 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 and we can't get it messed up. Like they, they kind of are. They are the adversaries in this story. But, but, but they were actually quite popular during Jesus' time. That the Pharisees, they rose up in what's known as the intertestamental period, that time between Malachi and Matthew, as Roman influence was rising, and they brought with them this idea called Hellenization. And, and so this influencing culture was coming into Israel, and the Pharisees rose up as this sort of conservational institution to preserve the way of life of Israel its history, its culture, its traditions. And their primary aim, I guess we could say, essentially was this. They wanted to make Israel holy again, okay? That was their aim, and that was their hope, and that was their desire, and that was their dream. And, and they were going to do this through personal piety, through strict adherence to Jewish law. And their thought that 
Their thought was that Israel would finally return to its like place of glory and freedom and independence when everyone began to subscribe to the same ways of living that the Pharisees had subscribed to. Their ways of purity, their ways of, of morality. There was this evil Roman Hellenistic other trying to come in and tarnish their way of life, but the Pharisees' work would fight that back. And ultimately, this was a tremendously noble cause. This is exactly what Jesus wanted too, but their way of going about accomplishing it totally missed the heart of God. Completely missed the heart of God, and why? Because their whole way of achieving this goal was was this sort of systematic separation of people into different groups, into the righteous, and into the sinners, into the good people and into the bad people. And this only exacerbated the problem because not only did the bad people who got shuffled over to the bad camp stay bad, but the good people ended up not being so good after years, decades of stressing and pressing purity. And so listen, in in, in various ways, we do the exact same thing. We are all guilty of this, and maybe we're not as intense about it as the Pharisees were, but all of us, all of us, we have this inner impulse and this inner desire to categorize people, give certain people group identities, and then we organize those people into good people and into bad people, into, into my people and our people and those people. And why do we do this? Well, a few thoughts on this. One reason why we do this is because it's simple, the simplicity of it. I mentioned this earlier, but if we tried to process every single individual that we saw as an individual who's unique with their own story and dreams and desires, it's a lot of work. And so it's a lot easier, it's a lot simpler to just categorize people into groups with certain traits and certain identities and be like, those are my people and those are not my people. And we make snap judgments like this all the time. We see someone driving with a certain bumper sticker and we're like, that's my guy. Or we see a different bumper sticker and we're like, no thank you, not my people. We categorize people, it's just simple. Another reason we do it is for security. Another reason we separate people into groups is it it creates for us this, this sense of security and safety. And then we derive our identities in our sense of self and security when we've drawn clear lines and we acquire labels about who we are and who we are not, about the kind of people that I will welcome to my table literally and figuratively and the kind of people that are excluded from my table. In fact, I think many of us use a variety of things to signal this, the clothes we wear, the words that we use, the the bumper stickers on our car to signal to other people, this is my camp, this is who I am who is with me and who is against me. And it creates this sense of security. And finally, I think we separate people into different groups because of fear. We long for that simplicity and security and all these things are connected in a certain way, but we're afraid. We separate certain people into the outsider camp because they pose a threat to the way we think, to the way we live, to to our way of life, to our safety, and we're afraid of them, and we separate them, and we build certain ways of life so that we don't have to interact with them. We don't have to engage with those kinds of people. Now listen, I'm not saying all of these things right now to make us feel bad about ourselves, okay? 
We, we all do this, all right? I share these thoughts only to say that as we encounter this story in Mark today, I think that we, myself, most definitely included this morning, have this strong propensity to build safe, comfortable, secure lives surrounding ourselves with people who look like us and people who act like us. And unless we can humbly acknowledge this about ourselves and be confronted with the truth about how we are to truly live and think and act in this world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then we will never see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Again, what do you see when you look at people? When you look at other people, what do you see? In this story today, we see two vastly different ways of seeing others. We see the way of the religious leaders. They're peering in, they're gawking with suspicious attitudes, they're judging Jesus in this moment. And then we see the way of Jesus. He saw Levi as an individual. He accepted his invitation to his dinner party. He was spending time with those who were othered by the religious leaders of the time. And then how does this story wrap up? Well, we can sense in this story this tension, this conflict that is building between Jesus and the religious leaders, the very fact that Jesus would sit down and eat with these unclean sinners, these, these, these bad people. And was Jesus just doing this because he liked to tick off the religious leaders? Like, like he just loved it. He just liked to like stir the pot. It's kind of like punk rock Jesus or something. You know, he's just like trying to get in there and tick off the man, you know? Uh, not exactly. I mean, Jesus gives his reasoning right there in verse 17. He says after hearing their suspicions and hearing their question, he says this. He says, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And so, so the conflict that Jesus experienced with the religious leaders, it was just a byproduct of what Jesus was going after. And what was Jesus going after? Well, what Jesus was trying to do was Jesus was trying to subvert a religious system that was separating what God always wanted to join together. And what God has wanted to join together since Genesis 3 are sinners to himself. That's what God longs for. Our entire story, the entire story of scripture is, is God moving towards sinners and sinful humanity, chasing after us. I've heard so often that like God hates sin and he can't stand to be around it. And certainly we worship and, 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 and love and serve this holy God. But, but, if, but if that's the truest true, that God can't be around sin, then Jesus would have never come to this world in flesh, dwelling amongst us sinful humanity, pursuing after us to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. That's why Jesus came. And you see, there are ways of living and systems of belief like the religious leaders used Torah and God's law to keep sinners over here and keep the righteous over here, to keep the clean over here, to keep the unclean over here, good people over here, bad people over here, and there are ways that promote separation, and then there is the way of Jesus. And it's vastly different. Jesus, what he brings, is he brings the truest rule and reign of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. We saw this in the very first sermon of this series that Jesus announced that the kingdom of God has come near. 
And he brings that rule and reign to bear upon the world around him. And as he does that, it generates conflict. It naturally generates conflict because it ruptures preconceived notions about who God is and what God is all about. It fashions new ideas about where God will go and how God will pursue. What is God like? Look at Jesus. What does God do? Look at what Jesus does. And what does Jesus do in this story? Instead of guarding boundaries, Jesus is crossing boundaries. Instead of remaining in the temple, he's outside of the temple and he's available everywhere, even at dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners. He, he no longer works from the center, from a place of power, but Jesus is working now from the margins. And so we have this Jesus, the holy and anointed one of God, the long-awaited Messiah, and he was not sent into this world as a force to dominate. He was sent and he came, he said, to serve. And he was persecuted and he died in the service of others to unite them, to unite us, to God, and to one another. And if anything stood in the way of this mission that Jesus had, whether it was morality, some sort of ideology, Whatever it was, he would tear it down. He would tear it down. Now, a few quick takeaways here at the end. First of all, there are some of you who hear this story about Jesus going into this this place that was sort of seen as forbidden by the religious leaders, and you're like, I like this kind of Jesus. You're like, this is my kind of Jesus. He's going in, he's, he's stirring the pot, he's causing conflict, he's, he's going to parties. I like party Jesus, okay? Like, that's my guy. Here's the thing, here's the thing. Jesus, just note this, Jesus is not like the good cop version of God, okay? That's not who Jesus is. Like, Jesus, lest we begin to think that Jesus doesn't care about morality or virtue or ethics or righteousness, we need to remember Jesus' mission here. Jesus came to heal the sick, He came to heal the sick, to bring the sick who are far from God and who have been wounded and destroyed by sin or church politics or religiosity or marginalization. And he's called those people who are far from God to draw near to him. Jesus called Levi to follow him. And we talked about what this means the other week. To follow Jesus means to be with Jesus. It means to become like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. That's what following Jesus means. That's what discipleship is. And he doesn't just say to people, you're healed, now go do whatever you want. He, he, he calls people and he heals them so that they may be with him, become like him, and then go out and bring that message of healing to other people. He calls us so that we would live a new life in him and be changed and transformed by him. That's what he calls us to. And so for some of you, there might be an imbalance in your life right now. It's all party and no discipleship to Jesus. We're like, man, Jesus parting with sinners, I got that down, but we don't really have the follow me part down. And yet we see here in the story that, that, that follow me, it's right at the beginning of the story. And so there might be this gap in your life. And my hope and my prayer is that in the months and in the year to come, you would be challenged to, to deepen your discipleship to Jesus. For some of us, that's where we're at. We need to grow in our discipleship with Jesus, that we would be a a community that's more intentional about practicing the way of Jesus together, growing in our walks with him. Now, Now, others of you, you're on the other side of the fence. You've built a pretty secure, comfortable life. 
It's separated from other people who are unlike you. And I don't think we do that with like evil or malicious intent. I just think that's kind of how life happens sometimes. And it's the life that we live. And so here's my challenge for us today. Would we, would we diversify our dinner tables? Okay? I know that sounds really specific, but listen, it's, what's, it's what Jesus is doing here. And we don't need to overcomplicate this at all. Jesus is at this dinner table and he is crossing boundaries. And so what I mean by this is it's just a simple question. Who's at your dinner table? Maybe we need to go before that. Like, is anyone coming over to your dinner table? Like, maybe the first step is throw dinner parties, okay? Like, that's the first piece of advice. Like, invite people into your home. Go on a, go, go, go to like a picnic. Go on a walk. Invite other people into your life. And are the people who are around you right now, are they always like you or, or, or is it a place of grace open to everyone? Again, I don't think we need to complicate the work of Jesus here. I think the spirit can work in tremendously powerful ways around a table, around a dinner table. Like Jesus, we can cross boundaries at a dinner table. It's what Jesus did. He, he subverts these broken systems of separation that cast these outsiders out and away from the, the religious center of, of, of Judaism at the time. And he didn't do it just to like stick it to the man or for some sort of ambiguous call to equality. He did it because it's a profoundly effective way to accomplish his mission of healing the sick, of bringing sinners to God. And so, simply put, with this simple story from Mark 2, verses 13 through 17, my hope and my prayer is that we would increasingly become the kind of people who are building bridges, not barriers. That that's who we would be. That we would be engaging with and having conversations with all sorts of people, people who are vastly unlike us with the aim of helping them find hope and healing in Jesus. And listen, this is something that is far easier said than done. And it's gonna take courage. It's gonna take courage to reach outside of ourselves and invite other people who are unlike us to go on a walk, to have a picnic, to, to gather around our dinner tables for a meal. It's a, it's a weird thing. It takes some courage, especially to flex that muscle that we haven't flexed in a long time, maybe ever. But it's also gonna take humility. It's also gonna take humility, a reminder that all of us are sick in need of healing. And, and, and where would so many of us be if we ourselves were not invited to someone's dinner table? If we were not invited into someone's life who knew Jesus? Would we be those kinds of people moving forward, B being a healthy, healing community with open dinner tables, crossing boundaries, and seeing sinners come back to God? That's what we long for. That's what our, that's what our hope is. And so as we close right now, would you stand with me as I pray? Father in heaven, we, we are so grateful that you pursued after us, that you did not relent even though we ran away. We thank you for your love and for your kindness. God, we thank you that in our sickness, Lord, you chose to reach out to us through your son Jesus and bring us healing. We are so grateful for that. Lord, I pray that we would be a community that brings that healing to others, that we would form relationships and invite other people over for dinner, and, and God, that we would cross boundaries and that we would welcome other people with the healing and, and, and life-giving message of the gospel, Lord, that your kingdom is near. God, I pray that you would give us courage. Give us courage to um, reach out and connect with others and love others well, and God, would you humble us? 
Would you remind us, Lord, that, that, that we would be nothing without your grace and mercy? God, would we approach other people? And would you help give us the ability and strength? Would your spirit empower us to see other people like you see them? That's what we long for, Jesus. We want to see other people like you see them. Give us a heart for those who you have put in our orbit, in our, um, in, 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 have put us in relationship with, Lord, that we, would, that we would love them well and care for them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.